Okay, we're talking about the Egeret Teman of Harambam. Of course, over here is dealing with a difficult situation, as we know already. Issue of the Jewish communities now being attacked by the Amulhadis, by the Islamic fanatics, fundamentalists. They want the Jews to convert from their Jewish religion to the Islamic religion. From their point of view, this is something that should happen because obviously Muhammad is the last prophet. Obviously, Muhammad had brought new religion to bear and therefore <clears throat> these people have the obligation of switching, converting, changing their religion. That was one issue. Now, Harambam has the obligation, of course, as you well know, to comfort these people. How should he do so? First, he tells them, you are an extraordinarily wonderful community. You have a long history of people that are Yiddish Shammai, people that are Shomrei Mitzvot, people that understand well what religion is all about. Point number one. Point number two, all that's going on right now was predicted in Nevi'im. So don't think there's something that is deviant from the pathway that the prophets had already established. This is, we know this is going to happen. I most predict this is going to happen. And his prayer actually, in fact, helped avoid some of the more extreme forms of this kind of affliction. So Rambam wants the people to realize this is not something that's different or distinct. This is part of business as usual, which gives a person a certain kind of comfort in knowing that we're now dealing with business as usual as opposed to the now targeting me as something new and distinct. This is part of what it means to be a Jew in a hostile environment. You have to live with it. Good. Now, the Rambam goes further to explain what this period of Shemad, Shin Mem Dalet, martyrdom is all about. He tells us this is part of Havle Mashiach. Havle Mashiach means, and the Gemara talks about this a thousand years earlier, that before the Mashiach comes, there's going to be birth pangs of Mashiach. There's going to be a very difficult period of time for the Jewish people. Called Havle Mashiach, before the Mashiach comes. And this has been spoken about in the works of the Nevi'im, Daniel especially, Harambam quotes, and says that just see this as part of the march of history. What you see it in that perspective, you say, oh, okay, then I can handle this. It's not this thing that you look My response should not be anything that my grandfather's response. I'm a him and great-grandfather. So what do you do? He kept the faith. He was not interested in martyrdom. He was not interested in uh, not interested in, in uh, giving his life. He, was, he did what he had to do. You do what you have to do also. So it becomes part of normal life experiences. But in an analogy might be is that if somebody loses you know, a parent, right? it's, a, it's an earth shaking, shattering experience. We all know that. Correct. But when you look around and see that they're saying you're in shul and you see people saying Kaddish, you see a man who's 70, you see a person who's 50, you see a person who's 40, you see yourself as part of the mainstream. This is what happens. It's part of life. It's the way of all flesh. And you don't see it any longer as a personal shattering experience. You see it as part of what goes on in life. You see yourself as part of the mainstream. As a result of this, you're able to deal with it much more easily than if simply it's me and I'm the only one saying Kaddish. So there's something which I found to be something wonderful that going to Shul saying Kaddish and seeing, well, there's 20 people saying Kaddish. You're not any different than saying Kaddish. You're just part of the mainstream. This is what happens in life. And let's go through it and, and, and emerge from it, especially when you see people who have emerged from it. You see the person who just, you know, is finishing saying Kaddish. So he finished saying Kaddish. Oh, okay, good. So you know that it, there's an end. You know that it's a certain appropriate process, procedure that one does and despite the current pain and affliction that you're feeling, still no, you see it as part of a broader whole. Rambam gives the broadest view of what this is all about. Now, where does this come from? Well, people are saying, one second, maybe they're right. An important part of this essay is to realize Rambam is writing against those people who, said, who say, maybe the Muslims are right about this situation at this point. 
Maybe they are the true religion. Because you always have this tension between reality and the ideal statements or promises that Torah makes about your future and your destiny. God promises you to be plentiful as the sand, as the stars in the heaven. You're not. There are many more plentiful people. There's the Muslims who 1.8, 1.2 billion and the Christians 1.8 billion. Why is that the case? Why don't we make it? We're supposed, we're supposed to make it. The tension between reality and the ideal situation is what raises doubts in the minds of those people. So the Ramah says, I have to deal with these doubts. Don't have the doubts. Why not? Because we know that from our sources, we are the chosen people, given a Torah, given laws, etc. Summarizing now what we covered last week. And those pagan nations or others are simply jealous of us. They're jealous because we have what they don't have. God chose us. Why did God choose us? Is it because we were so great? No. Ramah wants to emphasize that God chose us because of Zichut Avod, because of the forefathers, number one. And number two, because of God's kindness. He doesn't want this to relate specifically to your merits, because then you might come to the conclusion, what happens if I don't have any longer any merits? He's concerned. So rather than you come to a conclusion that I deserve this punishment or I deserve the reward, Ram says this is beyond your specific actions. This is part of the march of history, part of Halei Mashiach, part of what the Nevi prophesied about. And God chose you not because of your greatness and therefore you're suffering now because you're not great. No. God chose you out of Zichut Avot, which still is in existence. So don't worry about that. And Hesed of Hashem. Good. So now that he explained this chosen nation concept, making them feel good, they're attacking me and afflicting me. Why? Because I'm Amnifhak, I'm the chosen nation. So I put a tinge on their attack against me. The tinge is that they attack me because they're jealous of me. So I now feel myself to be morally superior to them. I could deal with their attacks. As opposed to feeling demoralized by their attacks, I feel the more that they attack me, the more jealous they are, the higher I feel myself to be, which is part of the psychology of survival at this point. Interestingly, one can raise the question, why did the Syrian Jews succeed so much in this country as opposed to the Ashkenazic Jews who failed miserably? Right? The Ashkenazic Jews ended up intermarriage, assimilation. They couldn't handle the American scene. It was the Americanization of the Jew which led to all the intermarriage and the assimilation. We didn't go through that process. Maybe it's not over yet. We're here 100 years. We, our synagogues are full. Our schools are full. We have the kosher restaurants. We have Kulim. We have everything we could possibly want. We're doing extraordinarily well as an ethnic group. Why did it happen this way? One might explain that in Halab itself, going back hundreds and hundreds of years in Halab, the Syrian Jew always felt himself to be morally superior to the Muslim. In other words, his attitude, his demeanor is that though you have all the power, because the Muslims had all the power, Islam had all the power in Syria, still and all, I know myself to be above you. Though I cannot build a synagogue that's above your mosque, though I cannot ride a horse as opposed to a donkey, I can do any of that sort of stuff. But I know that I'm better than you are. I don't need to imitate you, because I know who your founder is. Muhammad, you push him away, because what did he mean? Here's the, uh, perhaps the value in the Rambam calling him a Meshugah, a crazed person. Because we raised that question last week, if you recall. Has the Rambam going to confront the danger of calling Muhammad in an Islamic country in Egypt, written to an open audience, He's a crazy man. But maybe the flip side of that, or the fact that brought the Ramah to saying that, is simply because he wants to delegitimize their religion. And once the Syrian Jew felt, the last 500 years, 
superior to the Muslim. He comes to this country. Now, is he going to feel less superior to the Christian or to the, uh, to the secular, to the Americanization of, of, is there an attempt to Americanize the Jew, the Syrian Jew? The answer is no. We have our foods, we have our language, we have our way of dealing with We are used to interacting with the host population in what you would call a very constructive, healthy way. We do business, we appreciate what you do, you, we're good to you, you're good to us, and it works out. That's the way it was in Syria. That's the way it was in America. Don't ask of me to change my religion, which America did not. And the Muslim, at most points in the last three, four hundred years, did not do so. Had a very harmonious relationship, so it worked out. So the Syrian Jew never felt a need to change and become Americanized. As the Ashkenazi, who felt demoral, felt himself to be demoralized by the host population in Europe. Europe was miserable for the Jew, obviously, we all know. Syria didn't have that. The Ashkenazic Jew was pushed into ghettos. He was cursed. He was reviled. He was derided. He was made fun of. There was a constant attack on the Jew in Europe. That we know. So you didn't have that. So at the end, I could comfortably walk with you and talk with you and be part of your society. And I know in my heart of hearts that I'm really better than you people anyway. So now I come to America. Same thing. I'll walk with you. I'll talk with you. And I will survive very easily with you. And I know that I'm better than you are. So it's an easy kind of a merging. No need to assimilate. What Syrian Jew assimilates? You have, you're here a hundred years, we don't, so we still eat our same Ahmadjin and Kibir, we still do our same Friday night dinners and Saturday dinners and holidays. Extraordinarily so. To appreciate that, one has to know the current of Jewish history, what the Ashkenazim went through. To the contrary, only in the last 10, 15, 20 years have they reasserted themselves, mainly you know, because of ethnic pride in America. I'm Jewish and I can't, couldn't be prouder. That's the last 20 years. But for a hundred years before that, it was, I want to be an American. I'm embarrassed by my parents who have a Yiddish accent. We never had that. We have that Syrian pride, quote-unquote, call it whatever you want to call it. And I would suggest that its roots are in feeling that superior superiority to the Muslim in Syria and now in America feeling superior to the host culture. So good. So now the Rambam wants to encourage that feeling to survive because you are better. They're jealous. You're better. Therefore, they attack you. The more they attack, the better you feel. And the better and more likely are your chances of survival. Good. So now, they're doing battle. They're jealous. They hate us. What sort of expressions do their, does their hatred take? First, there's a physical attacks. And the Ram gives examples in history where the pagan nations attack the Jews. But there's something also, he says, that they try to convince us that we're wrong. Our religion is the wrong religion. Two different attacks. But of course, we are saved from all of these. But now, what we're going to begin with today is a new form, Ram says, a new form of attack. Besides the physical attacks, besides the verbal, intellectual attacks, now we're going to face a much greater threat, and that's Christianity. Why is that a greater threat? Because there's so much like us. Let's look at our text. You should be on page... Kofiud Zayin, are you with us? Listening? Okay. Kofiud Zayin, he tells us, Middle of page. When the Goyim, the non-Jews, who intended, they tried to physically attack us, or intellectually attack us. When it came to their awareness that this structure of Judaism is not easy to destroy, and still they tried to attempt 
to destroy the foundations of our religion that were deep-seated, deeply planted ideas. And despite this, they still are trying intensely to destroy all that we've built. However, complete and total confidence that we are going to survive this. Our building of Jewish teachings shall stand very strong. So the Rambam gives them this confidence in the future. It's going to work out. Whatever the present is, it's going to work. And truth shall laugh at them, shall laugh at these attempts at undermining <clears throat> at undermining the great, magnificent edifice called Judaism. What that means is that God himself, who is truth, sits and laughs at all they're trying to do with the weakness of their minds. They attempt all this with no purpose. It's not going to work. And this now, of course, is going to quote David HaMelech because whenever you can quote a traditional source, it supports your position. So David said this already in Ruach HaKodesh, and the Ramam doesn't often use that term. He said this prophetically when he saw that their intent was to destroy the true religion. And what is God doing there? God sits and laughs at them. And he quotes Tehillim Perek Bet that the non-Jew says, let us throw off the burden or the reign of servitude. When they say that, they want to do that. They're going to become free people, independent of what God wants of them. No, God sits in the heavens and he laughs. God shall laugh at them. We are still being tested. Still tested by these two intents. What two intents? The physical and intellectual. The day that we had our kingdom and even the days of our exile. That's where we're at right now. And he gave above on the prior page, he gave us examples of the early Amalek, Sisra, Sadharif, Nebuchadnezzar, Titus, the Romans. They attacked us physically. But also there were those who tried to use their minds to attack us, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Edomites, all of these, the Ram says, they're attacking, attacking, these are two modes of attack. But we've survived it all. So what you're going through now, people, is nothing new. You'll see that we'll survive this as well. However, now comes the new issue. Hit Hadesha. There's a new group. That now is grandiose in what it does against us and embitters our lives more so than the other two groups. More so than the other two groups, right? And they're really attempting to overturn us. Which means to say, They are more intense, they are more powerful than the physical assaults that we had to endure, as well than the, as the intellectual assaults. So what's he so afraid about? Now, here's an interesting notion. How is the Rambam going to paint Christianity? Irrespective of how Christianity paints itself in terms of its mission to the Jews, the Rambam has to spin that differently, obviously. Right? The Rambam is going to polemicize against Christianity. Now you could raise a question right now, and we'll come back to it in about two or three pages. Why is the Rambam now about to attack Christianity for the next two or three pages when he's really talking about Islam? What's the point of attacking Christianity when his main adversary is Islam? Okay, so that's one possibility. There's no end to how they're going to come at us. You have new challenges every single period of time or something else. So that Christianity is worse than uh, Islam. 
What does he gain by that? Shaykh Shazwis and Islam. Why should he want to gain that? What's the point of that? Islam? Is this Ramam's angle over here? No. What is the what does Islam think about Christianity? They don't get along. Yeah, we're not getting along. The truth factor over here. Of course they don't get along. But Islam oh. thinks that Christianity is a false religion. Right. So the Ramas make the same argument down the road about Islam. The same way you, same way that you Islam think Christianity is false, we Jews think that you're false. So he almost is entrapping them. It's almost a trap. Jews, remember, we all, Islam and the Jews, both deny, denigrate Christianity. Correct? We both denigrate Christianity. But the same way that that Islam agrees with us with regard to Christianity, we all go to denigrate Islam in the same fashion. So it says, so a Jew thinking, you know, somebody's right. A Jew would say, one second, he's right, that Islam agrees that Christianity is negative, so we all agree with that. So now it's only a much smaller leap to say that we as Jews denigrate Islam as a true religion. Because what's good for the gander is good for the ge- for the goose. That's an honor of Stephen to say that. Yeah. I know. That's why <laughs> if you came in more often, I would say it right. If you came in once a, once every year, then I'm not going to say it right to you. That's all. So see what we're saying? So the Ram is going to make a very strong attack against Christianity with the ultimate intent that we can make the same claim against Islam. So they're both negative religions. They both ought to be denied any kind of validity or legitimacy. Let's see what he says about Christianity. Now what happens? Christianity comes onto the scene. They thought they'd be very wise, the Christians. They're going to destroy this nation, our Jewish nation, from another angle. What other angle? Look how subtle and sly the Rambam views Christians to be. Now, this may not be reality, right? Or maybe reality. You could evaluate that as we go along. But this is where the Rambam sees Christianity, right? He's now 1,000 years into Christianity, the Rambam, correct? And this is their new angle on us. They were devious in the suggestions. They want to validate the claims Christian makes by virtue of what's the all-encompassing validating principle in Torah and subsequent literature? Prophecy. So Yeshua comes along and says, God said to me that I am now the new religion. And I now will have a Brit Hadashah. A New Testament. A New Testament. So what are the Christians going to do? They're going to go ahead and open up your books, the Jewish books, and they're going to say that our new religion, Christianity, is in fact predicted in the old books. Prophesied. Now look how subtle that is. They're saying to the Jews, and this is true, that your own religious sources predict the coming of Yeshu, <coughs> with a new religion. Now, we could look at, for example, Yirmiyahu Perek Kamzah. One thing, but... Right, I don't want to take too much time for this. Here in Yirmiyahu Alaf, actually, we have an Alaf. He talks about... And look how subtle this is. It's utterly brilliant. In the 31st chapter of Jeremiah... And there are other chapters that we can point to, which we're not going to, but in this chapter over here, right, Yemiyahu says, 
but God is going to write a new covenant, a new testimony. Thank you. A new covenant, a new testimony. In hold up this. I'm thinking one second. I think it's 31 or 32. Where you use the term Brit Hadashah, which means New Testament. Yes, read Hadashah, 3131. Now, let's say you want to found a new religion. What should you do? What's the greatest strategy that you could actually think about? Say that the old predicts the new, and therefore the new has the validity of the old. But new, now it's a religion. He says over here to us, <coughs> Days are about to come, God says, and I shall establish a new covenant with the Jewish people. Brit Hadashah. New Testament is a literal translation of Brit Hadashah. Right? Not like the old covenant they had when the Jewish people left Egypt. Right? Which they have violated. And I rejected them for it. But rather I'm going to now make a new covenant. So it's right here. So the Christian says to the Jew, look at Jeremiah. In the year 700, in the 7th century before the common era, it was predicted there's going to be a Brit Hadashah. A New Testament. Not only that, if we looked at Isaiah, for example, 53, the Suffering Servant chapter, very famous chapter, look at it, he says, exactly what was predicted. There's going to be a man coming from the house of David. And this man's going to be afflicted, he's going to be scorned, he's going to be derided, he's going to be laughed at, he's going to be ridiculed. And he's going to die for our sins. It happened! It says it in Isaiah in the 7th century before the common era, and it actually happened 700 years later. So it's predicted and it happened, so therefore we're right. In your, from your own sources very sharp. Now, when I teach this stuff in high school, I challenge the kids, say, you better answer these arguments. If you don't, then you become Christians. If you cannot answer... They're just putting a spin on our stuff. Why is he just a spin? There's a Brit Hadashah over here, and they, it ha he predicted a new covenant. Is this where the Jays for Jays came in? Uh, absolutely. Of course. Very effective. It's extraordinarily effective. There are 100,000 Jews that have become Jews for Yeshu because it's so effective. Another pasuk in Zechariah, there's ten different proofs we can bring. Another pasuk in Zechariah which says, they, dakaru, chapter 9 I think it is, he whom they pierced. Who did they pierce? Who was pierced? Yeshu, he was pierced. 500 years earlier than it actually happened. So it's all predicted over here. So if you can't answer these uh, these questions, let's go to the nearest what, church. What's Brit Hadashah referring to here? A new order. A new testament. God will give us a new testament. It says New Testament. There'll be a New Testament. It says it right over here. You're getting nervous, I see. What's the New Testament that we... They took off where we... They took, took it up where we left. So what's the New Testament that we're supposed to understand from this? We as Jews. They... Christians would say what the New Testament is. Is the New Testament. But we as Jews... Oh, you want to know how to answer? Yeah. No, no, I want you to answer the question. It's an astounding point because the church has assaulted Jewish people for thousands of years and killed them and burned them at the stake because they were so convinced that they were so right. 
The Christian says, you Jews are perverse, you're evil, you're sons of devil, of Satan, because it's so obvious to us. It says it, it happened, we're right, you're wrong. So give up this game you're playing, the sham, and convert to Christianity. And to them it was obvious. It's pashut, it's so obvious. It says it and it is. So now, furthermore, we have another pasuk in Isaiah 5, which says, guess what? A virgin shall give birth to a child. Guess what happened? She did. Hineh, what is the pasuk exactly? Hineh, Bilalat Ben. Hineh, I want to get the right, exact right word. Yishayahu, I think it's 5. You know, and, and unless you were involved with Jews for Yeshu and trying to save Jews, you don't, you know, the sources come at you very powerfully, very strongly. We could find that pasuk. Uh, where is it? It's six. It could be seven. In there. Alma. So the text uses the word Alma. Now, how do we answer all these questions? Since I don't want you to run to the nearest church down the block, I will tell you how to answer all these questions, right? And the deviousness and the subtlety is what Ram is pointing to over here. How deviant and how subtle. They took our own text, called it prophecy, and said that that prophet predicted what we're going to be doing, what the Christians are going to be doing. Correct? It's a brilliant idea. And tens of thousands of Jews actually bought into that idea and converted to Christianity during the <coughs> Middle Age period. Today, Christianity is not an option for us. None of us are going to convert to Christianity. Although, again, as Stephen points out, look how successful Jews for Yeshua are. They've converted more people in the last 20, 25 years than the Christian church has done in a thousand years. They're that successful to, to believe in Yeshua. They had, when I was fighting Jews for Jesus in my uh, fighting Jews for Jesus days, going back uh, 20, 25 years ago, there were three or four uh, synagogues, these synagogues, and they had maybe three or four thousand people. Now they claim to, let's say it's exaggerated, they claim a hundred thousand, let's say it's exaggerated, let's say it's fifty thousand Jews. You see them, we drive by, you know, Jews for Jesus, you see that? It's one in hand, it's one in hand right on 34th Street, 33rd Street, right? They see a big, huge temple, Jews for Jesus. Now they say that they have a hundred, at least, temples throughout the country, and they have, they say, it was an article of the Times a couple of years ago, 100,000 Jews for Yeshua. Because Jews are buying into it. Why? Because it's predicted on college campuses. Kids who don't know better, just, they're right. It says it, it happened, it's right. So what's the answer? On 37, it says it doesn't even work. But Hashem said if the heavens could be measured and the, and the earth could be, could be fathomed, then, then would I uh, reject all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done? I would reject them, right. But in every, in every time... The scientists of the day can measure the earth, can measure the, the, the heavens, and they can fathom the earth. Yeah. So it, it, it seems that within each time, because these things can be quantified, that Hashem is, in fact, rejecting all the offspring of, of Israel, all that they have done. Yeah, that's a metaphorical statement. I'm not sure what the same. The fact is that, yeah, the Christians say that God rejected us. We did Egel, we did all kinds of transgressions. God rejected us. So we sin, God rejected us. They use all of these means and mechanisms in order to convince Jews to not be Jewish. So that's Christianity. So what's the answer? The answer is that each one of these are very simply answered. That in fact, if you look at Jeremiah 31, 31. No, that's, that's Isaiah 5. Hold on a second. But if you talk about First <clears throat> Jeremiah 31, 31, what is the New Testament? If you read the entire context, which they never do, they never do, 
the entire context. The New Testament is simply the Old Testament now taken seriously by the Jews put into their heart. So if you look at Yeshayahu 31, uh, sorry, Yeshayahu 31, he says it very clearly to you. Right? 31, we said, was the New Testament phrase that they adopted and they used because they wanted to capture us. What does it say? 33 says, Ki, Zotab, the New Test, the Testament, the Berit, that I shall make covenant with the people of Israel after the days, I will put my Torah in their hearts, and on their hearts I shall write it, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. It's the old. But they're going to take it more seriously. It's going to be internal rather than external. Is it more seriously or now it could be applied? It's, it's, the Jews are going to take it, they're going to internalize it. In other words, it's one thing if you tell your children, don't steal, right? And they, they learn not to steal. So don't steal. But is that value, not to steal, internalized or is it externalized? Well, up to a certain point, when they're four, five, six, seven, nine, ten, they will, it'll be an externalized, imposed value upon them. They won't steal because you said so. Right? Simple. But you hope that if you continue teaching them, that that will become part of their internal value system where they won't do it, not because you said not to, because they know that it's wrong. It's, it becomes an internal value. You may tell a child, don't eat that because it's not kosher. So as long as you're there, it's not kosher, kosher, it's an external value imposed upon you. So at point, we internalize these values. And you know, so you're not there, I'm not going to do it anyway because it's wrong. Whatever the case may be. So the Bidhah, the New Testament, in quotes, the New Covenant, is going to be the Old Covenant internalized. Number one point. Right? We solve that point. Now, of course, the next question is, how does Ishayahu 53, Nun Gimel, speak about a man who's going to be afflicted and spit at and ridiculed? And it happened to Yeshua. It's predicted, they say. What's the answer? Very simple. He, Yeshu, read the same script and only followed it. If his intent is to become the Messiah, Mashiach, he says, oh, there's a script over here. Isaiah said this was what to happen. So he pre-planned his entire scenario to just follow the script. It's not that he predicted it's going to happen. Yeshu just simply followed the script that was written. So of course it's going to match up. Clear? In Zechariah, Chapter 9, he who they pierced, that was a common form of torture. And it could mean running through with the sword. It could mean, doesn't necessarily mean crucifixion. And many Jews were run through with the sword. So they many were pierced. It's not referring to all them. And what is in, in uh, Yeshayahu Perekeh, Bine Alma. Alma does not mean virgin, it means young maiden. A young maiden, a young woman, doesn't mean virgin, a young woman is going to have sex, she's going to have a child. Nothing to do with virgin birth. They just misunderstood and mistranslated the word Alma. The word Betula means virgin. That's not what the text says. It's Alma, which means a young maiden. Not necessarily a virgin. So they simply just took every pastor wherever they could and tried to squeeze in, fit in some kind of interpretation, some kind of spin on it, or some kind of um, innovative understanding. During Yeshua's time? Afterwards, probably. The, the, the polemics 100, 200 years afterwards the polemics between Jews and Christians began to 300 after the right. after the common era 350 after the common era John and all that happened 100 years after the era. right so he was anti-Jewish but at the, one question is at what point did the Judeo-Christians split from the Jews and become Christians themselves and that's when the polemics began but even then it wasn't as intense the most anti-Semitic of the gospel is John of course Matthew, Mark, Luke are not anti-Semitic per se John is intensely anti-Semitic but he was the last, about 100 years after Yeshua. But it really began once the Holy Roman 
religion became Christianity under Constantine in 350, I think it was 325, 350, that's when it became much more intense. The battles, the polemics, the arguments, the uh, middle of the 4th century probably is when it took place. Okay, so then they came up with all these great proofs. Were they devious or were they just simply misunderstandings? Well, it depends who did it. The first guy might have been devious. Oh, look, it's a great proof that we have. But as it became more accepted, it became standard, part and parcel of the Christian approach to the Jews. It says it. You should believe it. It's your scriptures that's saying it. We're not proving to you Christianity from our scriptures. That'd be easy because we said this. We said it, but no, we're not going to do that. We're going to only prove the validity of Christianity from the Tanakh. They have 15 different proofs. I'll give you five. There's 15 or 20 of them where Pasuk read one way, mistranslation, or he followed the script, whatever it may be, which proves, in their mind, Christianity. And they really believed it. They believe that really Christianity is proven from the Torah itself, from the Tanakh itself. Right? Again, we could have so many, so many uh, proofs of that. In Berkot Yaakov, where Yaakov gives the ultimate blessing to Yehuda to lead the Jewish people. Right? And there it says that Yehuda shall lead Ad ki Shiloh until he comes from Shiloh. And he will have the scepter of rule. Which they say again implies that Yeshua is going to come over and take over the leadership of the Jewish people. So again, it's another context, which they say applies to this, but we say that doesn't apply to it. Something else completely different. You don't have to be applies to Yeshua. So now the Ram says and sees as complete deviancy. They say that prophecy proves our religion. So what should a person do? So this is a new third kind of attack on the Jewish people. We've had physical attacks before that. But intellectual attacks, let's say the Greeks and, and uh, Aristotle and Plato, whoever it may be. Now we have a new deviancy that we have to deal with. And much dif- more difficult, right? But They're going to start a new religion to the exclusion of Torah Hashem. And he comes along, Barabim, he says to everybody, There are two covenants. There's an old, and now we have a new one. A new one from Hashem. So God has... Yes, blessed you in days of old, so you're valid. You were valid. But now we have something new. A new, so now people, you are fine as you were. But now, get the new truth. The new truth is the Brit Hadashah. And his intent was, the Hadashah Safik, to innovate or create doubt and to bring confusion into the hearts of the people. When one Torah is the opposite of the other. And yet, both serve the same God. So, he, the new subtle way of dealing with the Jews is to close the gap between Jew and Gentile. If you're a pagan and you want to come and argue validity of your religion, look, I'm in a different place. You're a pagan. You believe in polytheism. Nothing to do with me. But when you're, if you're a Christian, saying, look, we're really the same. That's what the success of Jews for Jesus is saying. We're the same. We have the same Torah. We have a little more. We we believe in one more little item. So now, and even he was a Jew. Okay. And even he was a Jew, exactly. So now again, this is Imagine if somebody comes and says, "I want to kill your children," right? Standard medieval practice. I want to kill your children if you don't convert to Christianity. So you might say, "Okay, well, what do you really believe in?" Oh, I believe in the Bible, the Old Testament. I have a few new principles in the new. No new mitzvot. In fact, you follow the New Testament. You don't have to worry about kashrut. You don't have to worry about any of this mikveh stuff. You don't have to worry about Shabbat. We're much simpler and gentler. All you have to do is believe in the Messiah called Yeshu. You believe in Him, you have to do anything else. Believe in Him fulfills all the law. And it's very simple. And we believe in the same God. 
So now, you mean the whole difference between... Is this the one little point of Yeshu? I say my kid's life with that? Yeah. Okay. Why would I not do that? Because it's not as if I'm telling my kids to become pagans. If somebody came to you and said, you know, during the Holocaust, if a Nazi came to you and said to you, I will save your child, your children, but you have to become Nazis. I will raise them as Nazis. That's horrible. So this is how I raise them as Christians. Maybe you could deal with that. Christians, how far is it? Someone says to you, I'll raise them as Muslims, let's say, in that situation. That's even better. One God, Allah Wahid, God is one. Authors believe in Muhammad. And the, and the Quran is very much similar to us, a little bit deviant here and there, but I'll do it. Say my kids, I'll do that. But to become a pagan or a Nazi, and become a Christian or a Muslim, is a different world. So, they brought doubts and questions into our Torah. And yet we still, of course, believe in one God. This is now going to be an introduction and a gate in order to ultimately destroy our Torah. Now, the next 15 or 20 lines are censored from most editions of this. Right? We have we happen to have it over here. The next page and a half is censored. The Christians did not want you to read this next 20 lines. And again, you could raise the question, you know, why did the Christians allow up to this point what they did? It's not easy to enter into the mind of a censor. He allowed some pretty negative statements in the first eight lines that we just read. But he may have his own axe to grind, his own angle. What's his angle? He doesn't mind he doesn't mind these earlier issues to say that, in fact, prophetically, we created a new religion based on the Old Testament, right? With the intent of raising doubts in the minds of the old adherents, the Jews, right? And yet we do both believe in one God in order to ultimately destroy their Torah. So that's, just, that is, that's a fair statement of what we're doing. So I want Jews to read that part. So that's, he allows. Sorry? Exactly. So he allows the censor who went over all this, allowed those first eight or ten lines, this is what he erased. We happen to have it. The Zohar Tahpula. Now with this extraordinary plot, Christianity, that this evil man did. Who's the evil man? Yeshu. What's he going to try and do? He's going to try to kill his enemy while he still survives the battle. Right? Now, what happens if you fail to kill your enemy if you fail to kill your enemy in the battle? What's your next step? If you really believe in your cause? Okay, but you can't. Now we're doing battle. I believe in my cause. Right? So what do I what am I gonna do next? What's my next step? He tells you. Sorry? Well, I'm not gonna agree with you because you're my enemy. What I'm going to do is I'm willing to give my life for my religion. So therefore I'll try to get both of you. I will I'm willing to die for my religion. So Yeshua did what? He died. So those, if I can't beat you and I will survive, then I'll take you with me and we'll both will die. He died for our sins. So the Rama says over here that this evil man has such a devious mind. He says, I'm going to change you. I'm going to convert you. I'm going to make you into one of mine. But if you refuse, at the end you get a battle, battle, battle. What am I going to do? Then I'm going to take you with me and I'll kill you and I'll kill me. I'm that convinced that I am right. Martyrdom. them. Okay. So, Yeshu, in fact, does that. I will be willing to give my life, and I'm taking you with me. 
to show you how intense I believe in my religious principles. Right? <clears throat> so this plot, this tahbula, which raises doubts, which in the Jewish religion, from Christianity's point of view, and again, many Jews had many doubts. To this very day, many Jews have many doubts, as is evidenced by Jews for Jesus, right? And validated by our own Tanakh, by prophecy, is a very good sell. And you would agree that when somebody's willing to give his life for his religion, he's serious about it. So Yeshu said, you know something? Let me just give my life for my religion and I'll create a whole new religion. He was willing to do it. So he did what he had to do, gave his life, and that's a very convincing argument. When somebody's that sincere to give his life for his religion, maybe he's really right. God really said to him, do it. So you didn't stop believing in him. <clears throat> now, on the other. Exactly, right. Uthilat Mishimatsazuhadat and the beginning, the beginning of the person who is able to deviously use the Tanakh in the name of prophecy and to introduce a new religion, his name is Yeshua Hanotsri. Jesus the Christian, right? Notsri because he came from a city called Natsaret, right? Vihum Israel, but he was Jewish. He's Jewish. And even though his father, this is the Ramah's view, his father was a non-Jew, and his mother was an Israelite, we of course believe that if a non-Jew and a servant, non-Jew or a servant, who marries a Jewish woman, the child is Jewish. Right? So this man's Jewish. Right? However, he says, the Ramah says, we are going to speak about him in order to expose and exaggerate and intensify the shamefulness of this man. His mother was a prostitute. It's just she, she was really just a woman who married a Gentile or had sex with a Gentile and she gave birth to, to, to Yeshu. So we're going to expose him. So this, of course, the censor did not want you to know the truth about what the Ramah feels happened Christianity. And he came and made us think, made us think, that he was sent, Me'ashem, Shaluah sent, Me'ashem, to explain doubt in the Torah, and that he is the Messiah that was destined to come to, to us, and predicted, I'll call Navi, that every prophet said. And he explained the Torah, Perush, an interpretation, which brought about the nullification of Torah and all of its commandments, saying something along the lines of, believe in me, you don't have to do any, any mitzvot. Just believe in me, except me, and the mitzvot <coughs> are not binding on you any longer. And he, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the ad? No, not, not ad. But a, a, a prophet comes. Yes. That's in, in Parashat Re'er. I think it is. Yeah, there's going to be a false prophet. Which Ram is going to make reference over here later on. There's going to be a prophet who's going to come up and say, you know something? Let's go do Avadazarah. Right? The Navi will say, Navi will come along and say, I'm a prophet of God. He may even have a sign. He's going to split the sea. He'll walk on water. He'll stop the sun in its tracks. And, and the sun won't set. He'll do all that. And say, now that I fool myself, let's go serve idols. Right? He's going to say that. <laughs> so Torah tells you, Lord Tishma, don't listen to him. We don't care what sign he does. Do not follow an, a prophet who says he's a prophet, who proves he's a prophet. Why can't we use that as a... Uh... We could, right. Correct. The Jews did. The polemics go back and forth intensely for the next for thousands of years to this very day. We are still arguing. <clears throat> the question is, how would they solve that? How would they answer that problem? That says, 
Don't listen to that prophet. Because God is testing you. God is testing you that he may send you a prophet. And what does it mean he's testing you? It means that objectively, God's willing to say, I don't care what this man does as a Navi, the most grandiose miracles, if he tells you to do idolatry, don't listen to him. I'm, I will never send you somebody to do it. So he's fooling you. Maybe he's fooling you through magic, through hallucinations, through illusions, through mass hypnosis. Whatever he may be doing to you, don't believe what he says. You only have the obligation of serving God, of doing what God wants, what Hashem wants of you. Don't get involved in this person despite what he does. Right? Because this could be very convincing. If a man comes along over here and walks on water, what are you going to say? So we have in our objective, long-standing proof that God's not going to do this. So it's all false. And even if God gives him the power to do that, God wants your religious values not to be dependent upon your evaluation of that man that comes to what he does. No, we're telling you the rules over. The rules are no matter what, you don't do this. Analogously. You don't want your kid going home with a stranger from school. Right? So how are you going to protect your child, right? Send a stranger to pick you up. No matter what. If the stranger says to you, I will take you home, your parents told me, here's a note. Your note says, I will take you home. Never. No matter what the person says, the person may say that I was stuck in the hospital, there was an accident, or I'm in the city, whatever the case is, never will I send somebody else that you don't know to pick you up from school. Don't go with anybody. It's an ironclad rule, right? So, your child knows, ironclad rule, never to go home with any stranger from school, no matter what. No, your mother told me I'm your mother's best friend, I was playing cards with my mother. Never. Torah tells us, never follow this false prophet, no matter what they do. Let's say the stranger's driving your car. See, I'm driving your car. It's your Volvo. So obviously, your mother sent me. Here's your mother's picture. Here's your note. Never will I send somebody. Now, of course, what if you have an emergency? You may pay a price for that. That's a serious issue. What would you do if your child, it depends upon what's age appropriate, if your child needs to go home with your mother, what would you do? With somebody else, a stranger, what would you do? Right? You already set this ironclad rule. Well, this is what? I mean, you can't. You can't set it up. I'm going to tell you, kids. You don't want an ironclad rule? If, if, if there's no if, like you said, you lay down those. Absolute. And that's it. So what happens? Situation where you need to send somebody because you had to run to. What do you do? <laughs> would you tr- oh, wait, wait, would you trust that? Would you tell your kids that if, in fact, the child speaks to me on a cell phone, then it's okay? I wouldn't be comfortable with that. I don't know what this person could, you know, child's confused, not sure. Hi, it's mom, you know, I'll go with this person. I'm playing with very, uh, very valuable merchandise over here. So what you would do is then, is you might, you know, call the school. And the school give permission for the child to go home with a stranger. Now the school has to be responsible. That goes without saying. But you expect the school, and, say, and you tell your child, if the school, if the rabbi says, if the rabbi says it's okay, then it's okay. Because you respect the rabbi or the teacher or whatever it may be. So you need an ironclad rule as a general rule. Never go into a stranger in a, in a car with a stranger. But if the rabbi serves as, as my surrogate in place of me, then you can go with that person. Of course, that could also break down. You could also fail that way. What if the rabbi is a deviant personality himself? You know what you have. Rabbis will kill their wives all the time, right? You have that happening occasionally, right? So have a good day. 4.15. So that could be a problem as well. We do have those situations where rabbis are deviant and, and the kids suffer because of that. But you can't have it totally, you can't have it completely, you do what you can do. So 
Here Torah says to us over here in this context, do not follow the false prophet. Whatever he says, whatever he proves, ironclad rule. And even if you blow the call, God says it's okay. Now, let's say God really wants you to serve idols. But God said, I never would want that. I can't want that. It's, not, it's crazy. I would never want that. No matter what, I'm never going to tell a prophet to go to you to serve idols. It's not going to happen. Good. So, that would, of course, serve as a protection against these false prophets. But he said, I've come to clarify Torah. I've come to be the destined Mashiach that Rabbi Navi spoke about. And explain the Torah in all kinds of ways which is going to nullify Torah. And he allowed all of its warnings as he intended to do. Now, the rabbis, right? The rabbis felt the rabbis understood what we wanted to do prior, before, according before Shithazik was strengthened his popularity. Before people really knew what the rabbis were, therefore, what did the rabbis do? They did what was appropriate for him. They took care of him, right? What was that? They turned him over to the Romans. Right, the Ramah's views, they turned him over to the Romans. He was a radical revolutionary. There's an interesting book, by the way, that's interesting to read, called The Passover Plot by Hugh Schoenfeld, who was a New Testament scholar, <clears throat> Jewish guy, England, wrote a book about 40 years ago, which was very famous. And, and you know, it's, uh, when, in my college years, that was a book that you know, everybody read, which is shows how carefully planned Yeshu's whole entrance into Jerusalem on Pesach, his Last Supper, the said, and all that stuff. And he was all very carefully calibrated and planned. Right? Very, very careful. And the rabbis were aware of that. So they turned it over to the Romans. Look, you don't want this revolutionary person over here. Take care of him. You don't want anybody that's going to stir the pot because it's bad for us and it's bad for you. We don't, rabbis don't want it. You don't want it. So just do what you're going to do. So they, rabbis do this. So why do they hold us accountable for it? Because why do they? Well, it depends. It depends. If you, the New Testament does in fact say that we did it. When Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman procurator, Asked the Jews, they said the Jews answered, and according to the New Testament sources, that his blood will be on our hands and on our children's hands. Right? So we did, according to the New Testament, in fact, do what we did. Even in, yeah, well, it's not in the Old Testament because we, our Old Testament already closed. So from their point of view, we in fact are responsible. And you might even argue that let's say we did give him over to the Romans. Maybe we are responsible. On the other hand, if we call him Moreda Malchut, that he's a person who rebelled against the kingdom. He was deservant of Hayamita. We certainly didn't kill Yeshua because we don't kill through crucifixion, number one. And two, everybody will tell you that the Jewish court of law has never had the power of capital punishment after the Harbam and Amakdash, after the church of the temple. We didn't, we didn't been doing it for, for centuries, we went to capital punishment. So, really, we didn't do it physically, but they may want to say, and this will probably happen, that originally you are responsible. You didn't pull the trigger, but you paid off the hitman, if you want to put it that way. We heard about that recently, so. <laughs> what was going through his mind? We. It's, it's a strange uh, story. Was he? I don't know. You know him? Is he? No. You pray in the shul ever? You know? I mean, you don't know. So he, I know he's deviant. Maybe he's a regular guy. By what they claim his actions are, what's coming out to be the truth. They got the guy who. Oh, he did it. Guy. He definitely did it. Yeah. I mean, the guy did it. But what was going through? I mean, why? I, I just said to everybody, just let him divorce his wife and finish the whole story. He's sorry. He says he loved her. What I heard from the paper is that he still loved her. He still wanted to. Uh, you know, he really uh, loved her and, and just, I don't know why he did this. I mean, it's a, it's a, he thought he wouldn't get caught, obviously, and he just paid somebody. It's very simple. But it's, a, it's such a made-for-TV movie. It will be. It will be. Could you imagine how simple that would be? I mean, it's, it's a great story. Rabbi, pious, and all that. I mean, it's a great story. It really is a great story. It should, it should be made for movie TV. 
and because it will be. You know, and, and he's very partial to that, and, then he, and, he, and they, they could, if they want to show in a certain fashion how she tortured him, and, this, and why couldn't he divorce her? Because that would ruin his rabbinic reputation, right? So what do I do now? He's caught. I mean, if you really want to make this into a very um, um, tense moral dilemma, as crime and punishment would be, for example, by Dostoevsky, then you, sh- you shade him in the way that he's not deviant, but he's just caught between a horrible, evil woman, on the one hand, who threatens him, right? But this did happen. This is a movie. I'm sorry? Crime and Mr. Meese by Woody Allen, 20 years ago. I don't remember right now. Crime and Mr. Meese by Woody Allen. And he asks of you almost the moral question, what is a man who did something small that was wrong, had an affair, with woman, and actually starting to expose him, and he's, he's an ophthalmologist, he's prestigious, has everything that you could imagine, right? Wonderful. And she said, I'm going to expose you. So he kills her. He has him in killing her. And is he guilty? So we, of course, say that he's guilty. The question is... Oh, I'm sorry? Well, who's Marlando? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't, what do I know? What do I know? Uh, you want me to know that? It's, it's 20 years old? No, I don't know that. I don't care about actors. I don't care who they are. Just remember the movie. The moral, I like moral movies that raise questions like that are very interesting. Where do you draw the line? So, of course, we can never accept that it's okay to do that. But he tries to portray this man in a way that does raise the moral question. And you can really do so even more by even putting him close to uh, you know, mental, ca- mental collapse or moral collapse. I mean, if a mental collapse, you have a moral collapse where right and wrong is no, no longer clear any longer. She's torturing, she's badgering, she's banging away. She's going to expose him, <clears throat> you know, in any which way, that he, which will bring him tremendous shame. How could she expose him? Let's say she exposed him, let's say he uh, copied his sermons from somebody else. I don't know. Something like that, you know, and, and, and he's, he's riding the crest of his popularity. He's having a j- journal in his honor and everything else like that. Did everything wonderful and right. And now everything's going to come crashing down. His shame will be so intense and profound. What do I do now? I can't even divorce her now because she'll, she'll expose everything anyway. So there's only one answer. And she deserves it. Watch her because she's going to gratuitously harm me. She's doing it for no reason other than she's, just, she's, she's a deviant personality. She shouldn't live. Why should she live? She's a deviant personality. She's going to shame me and all this stuff. So if you color it and shade it in such a way, you end up with this moral dilemma. What does he do then? And what if it goes even more to the, to the extreme where the children are going to suffer as well from what this woman is going to do? Is that justified? Right? She's crossed the moral line first by threatening me and the children. It's going to be horrible for our children's sake forever. I have to do this. You can see you really thought this out. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> like what was going on? No, I'm not saying. No, no. no contemporary associations. <laughs> I love my wife. <laughs> I need her. No, but I'm saying, you know, you're a rabbi, you have to think, what, what went through this guy's mind? You know, he's... You see it. I mean, it can happen very easily. It can happen to anybody in this situation. But what happened to that woman who was working for a politician? What was her name? The Jewish girl? Levine or something? In California, wasn't it? You know these kinds of things. Yeah, Washington. Washington? Well, he, no, they worked in Washington, but he was something... Yeah, yeah, she killed him, right. and, and And he killed... Did he not kill her? We didn't find the body, but... He did, sorry? Right. So, unsolved. Unsolved. Which one is this? Uh, What's his name? Andiari? No, who? Uh, I mean, uh, no, Robert Kennedy's okay. No, he, he doesn't do these kinds of things. Kanduri, Kanduri. He's in the news. He just lost. He lost. Correct. He lost real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now again, what happened? He had he had a normal quote unquote affair. Right, right. But here's an interesting situation. He had a, a normal affair. Might have been a one night stand. She may have played up to him. We don't know. 
And you know who knows what happened. Levy was the name of the girl. Was right? it? Yeah, Levy, I think it was. That's the girl's name <clears throat> that passed away. And right. Know you're talking about now. Yeah. Know. Yeah. So at the end, so then she starts to expose him. Yeah. She extorts money. So what do he do at that point? So at that point, he killed her. So if that's what he did. He sees himself justified because she really threatened him first. So if one wants to shade this in, in a way that becomes a moral dilemma, as opposed to he's the bad guy, she's the good guy, if you shade that way, then you understand what, what went on over here. Okay, back to this. Let's just finish this page. So now, the rabbis knew this. So the rabbis gave up Yeshu, so they didn't pull the trigger, but they gave him to the Romans. So originally, perhaps, that might have been the prevailing awareness. The rabbis, which everybody missed, gave him up to the Romans. But that slowly became something else. That slowly became, we did it. His hand, his blood is on, on our hands. He did it. So, and the Christians, of course, held us responsible for that. For us in all generations, till 1973, 74, till Vatican II, which absolves us of the guilt of this. And notice the Rambam over here is key to comfort. What is he going to say to us? Hashem already told us this by the prophet Daniel. So we know it's going to happen. That there's going to be a person from who breaks forth from the Jewish people, the Chofrehem, and he's going to try to deny Torah with with glorifying himself in prophecy. And he puts himself into these in, in these great visions and he said, this person is going to say, page Kofkaf, that he's the Mashiach. And what will happen? Hashem shall cause him to stumble. As in fact he did. He stumbled. End story. And then he quotes a Pasuk. Now again, the Rambam is being somewhat subtle and sly over here in that he gets a pastor from Daniel, predicted all that's going to happen. So in the same way that they're using text to prove that Yeshua is the man, right? The Rambam says, we have text to prove he's not the man. And he goes, Daniel, and people that shall burst and break forth from your nation, shall self-aggrandize, to lift up a vision, and they shall fail. Now, is the Rambam's proof a good proof or not a good proof? What would you say about that? That pasuk really talks about Yeshu. You think? Talks about stumbling. Uh, oh, okay. Maybe there's something that's connected to this. So it means really something else. Well, okay. You one good thing would be to would be to look at the context and see where this kind of stuff is. But again, a pasuk from Navi could really refer to anything. This is not very specific. That there will be somebody who will burst from the nation, who will self-aggrandize, and try to set up a vision, and he shall fail. Okay? Okay. So, but that's, you know, in Daniel's time, there were dozens of these people going around. So it's interesting. Is Rahman being more subtle, more than they? Maybe not, maybe yes. Up to here is the end of the censor. So the censor ends over here, which is understandable, which we had this whole 15, 20 lines of censorship, where the Rahman really attacks them, and says that Hashem predicted this is going to happen. Because again, the fact that you could say that, I, that an Avi predicted it, it's going to happen is a very strong proof against that person. Daniel said it's going to happen. It happened that way. Don't let it bother you. It's not as if a guy comes up and says, look, I'm doing new. we knew this is going to happen. We're waiting for you to come and predict what you're going to do what you're going to do. We knew it's going to happen this way. Right? So up to over here, the Rambam has finished actually his attack on Christianity. But again, his main purpose is really, and we're going to have a few more lines about this, his main purpose over here is not Christianity, but rather it's really Islam as we'll get to. And see, how do you deal with an attacking Islam? How do you deal with the doubts that you have because Islam is attacking and inflicting? How do you deal with the other rabbi who said, commit martyrdom rather than convert to Islam? 
and how to deal with the question of a false messiah. Those are the central questions that the Rambam is going to deal with in the rest of this essay. Open letter. Yeah? Thank you.